The topic we'll be discussing today is one that we deal with all the time. It's one that we deal with pretty much every day of our lives. Uh, It is a biblical truth that is sometimes comforting to us, and sometimes it's very disturbing to us. Uh, It is a biblical truth that is quite easy to understand, but at the same time it is absolutely impossible to comprehend. What does that mean? Um, I'll, I'll tell you what it is after I've told you the story of Joseph. Uh, the story of Joseph. Many of you know that he is a very famous character, early part of the Bible and the latter uh, chapters of the book of Genesis. And you're somewhat familiar with Joseph's story. Joseph's story reads kind of like one of those jokes that you used to tell when you were in third grade. Do you remember, do you ever do the the fortunately, unfortunately jokes? You know, like you say something like, fortunately, I mean, I was was walking around on, uh, on the roof of my barn Unfortunately, I fell off. Fortunately, there was a haystack right next to the barn. Unfortunately, there was a pitchfork sticking up out of the haystack. Fortunately, I missed the pitchfork. Unfortunately, I missed the haystack. So you, 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 did, you, did you ever tell those? That Was that just a Massachusetts thing? I don't know. Anyway, that was, a, that was the kind of joke we used to tell in third grade. And it's pretty much the story of Joseph's life, if you look at it a certain way. Joseph is the 11th son of of Jacob, whose life we looked at last week. <clears throat> and Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. He is clearly Jacob's favorite son, largely because Joseph is the long-awaited firstborn son of Jacob and Rachel. Jake, uh, Joseph's mother, Rachel, was the love of Jacob's life, and she hadn't been able to have kids for a long time, and she finally had a child, and the first one was Joseph. And Rachel had recently died giving birth to the the youngest son, Benjamin, making Joseph that much more precious and important to his father. And Jacob, unfortunately, is not very shy about the way he prefers Jacob to his brothers. I'm sorry, he prefers Joseph to his brothers. Uh, Jacob keeps Joseph close to home to keep him safe. Uh, He gives him a tremendous gift. He gives him this amazing technicolor dream coat, as Broadway calls it. Um, The Bible calls it a coat of many colors. But this fancy garment is a token of Jacob's love for his son. And of course, with Jacob spoiling Joseph like this all the time, it doesn't sit very well with his older brothers, his ten older brothers, who basically start to hate his guts. And this tension in the family only gets worse when God gives Joseph a series of dreams. These are symbolic dreams in which Joseph sees his whole family bowing down to him, including all these brothers, and then he perhaps unwisely decides to share these dreams with the brothers. Now, Joseph may or may not have tried to do this humbly and tactfully. We don't know. Joseph's a pretty smart guy. But let's just say it doesn't go over all that well. And so this hatred and resentment of the brothers toward their little brother comes to a head one day when the ten older brothers, they're all shepherds, and they're tending sheep up uh, near a town called Dothan. And Jacob, Jacob must have underestimated their animosity for their brother because Jacob sends Joseph to go check up on his brothers to see how they're doing. He says, go up to Dothan, find your brothers, and, and check on them to see how they're doing. And, and they see him coming, and they figure he's just there to tattle on them and to spy on them, and they say to each other, here comes the dreamer. What shall we do with him? 
and his ten older brothers decide to kill him. And uh, now a couple of the brothers are a little bit uncomfortable with this decision. The oldest brother, Reuben, doesn't want to see Joseph die because he doesn't want to see his father get hurt. And so he convinces the other brothers, rather than actively killing him, rather than ending his life at our own hands, there's a, a pit over here. Let's throw him in the pit and just leave him for dead. And what Reuben means to do is come back later on and, and pull Joseph out of the pit. Well, meanwhile, there's another brother who has a problem with this, and it's the fourth son, and that's Judah. Judah does not know about Reuben's plan, but he also wants to save Joseph's life, and so he comes up with the idea of selling him into slavery, because there happens to be a caravan of Ishmael's descendants, remember Ishmael, um, just happens to be passing by the scene, and so that's what happens. They sell him as a slave, they rip off his nice coat, they dip it in sheep's blood, and they go home and they tell Jacob that his favorite son must have been dragged off and killed by some wild animal, which of course breaks Jacob's heart. Meanwhile, Joseph is taken to Egypt, where he is sold to a high-ranking military commander named Potiphar. And Joseph so distinguishes himself by his intelligence and his integrity and his hard work that he ends up being given authority over all the other servants in the house. Unfortunately, he also, being a very good-looking man apparently, catches the attention of Potiphar's wife, who tries on multiple occasions to seduce him. Joseph, to his credit, does not give in to her, but it gets to the point where she is so exasperated and she is so insulted by Joseph that she frames him for sexual assault. Now, Potiphar could probably have Joseph executed for this, but you got to wonder if just maybe he, he, he has some idea of what really happened. So instead, Joseph is just thrown in prison where he spends the next several years of his life. Then, in a repeat of what happened really at Potiphar's house, Joseph actually rises to a place of honor and authority even in the prison where he's put in charge of all the other prisoners. And this isn't just any prison. This is, this is the prison for important people in, in Egypt, like the Pharaoh's chief baker and the Pharaoh's cupbearer, both of whom have gotten into big trouble with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and so they've been thrown into this prison. Well, long story short, these two guys have some dreams. And Joseph interprets these dreams with perfect accuracy. And he tells the cupbearer, who at the end of this part of the story is being released to go back to his job, Joseph says to him, hey, since I did you this favor, when you see Pharaoh again, can you please you know, do me a solid and, and let him know that I'm still rotting in this prison and that I'm an innocent man? And so the cupbearer says, sure thing, Joseph. But then, inexplicably, the cupbearer forgets. And Joseph languishes in prison for two more years. Well, after these two years, Pharaoh himself has a dream, a very disturbing dream involving some cows, which he can't figure out the meaning of. And so he's puzzled about this, and he's sharing it with his attendants. And the cupbearer says, oh yeah, I just remembered something. There's a guy in prison, you know, so they go and they drag Joseph out of prison, and he accurately interprets the king's dream, which happens to be about the next 14 years of agricultural production in Egypt. Seven years of amazingly good harvests, followed by seven horrible years of devastating and deadly drought and famine. Pharaoh hears this. He realizes what he's got in Joseph. So not only does he take Joseph's advice to hoard grain for the next seven years, 
but he puts Joseph in charge of the whole project and, and gives him more authority, really, than anybody except for him would have in the nation of Egypt. <clears throat> Fast forward seven-plus years. The famine has now hit. And Jacob's family, the future nation of Israel back in the land of Canaan, is in real danger of starving to death, so there would be no nation of Israel. So Jacob, in desperation, sends his sons, the ten oldest ones, to Egypt to try to find out if they can get some grain. And again, I'm going to shorten this for the sake of time, but it turns out that Jacob's sons, when they get to Egypt, do find themselves bowing before their brother, although they don't recognize him at this point. And after a series of events in which Joseph kind of tests his brothers to see if they're really the scoundrels they used to be, in one of the most dramatic and emotional moments in the whole Bible, Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. Well, the family is saved. Jacob gets back his long-lost son whom he thought was dead. And the whole clan decides they need to move to Egypt, and so they do. But after Jacob dies, after Jacob dies, Joseph's older brothers are terrified. Because they figure this is now the time when Joseph, now that, now that Jacob's dead, that Joseph is finally going to get his revenge. And so in their fear, they go down and they bow down to him one more time, this time knowing full well who he is. And we pick up the story there in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. 50, 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Sure he did. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So uh, earlier I did that little joke about fortunately, unfortunately, as if Joseph's roller coaster of a life were just kind of a series, a progression of meaningless and random occurrences that he had to deal with. And if that's the case, then that's what our lives are too, right? They're just kind of a series of random things that happen to us that we have to figure out how to deal with. And if things go good and if things go bad, well, that's just life. But Joseph, for his part, does not seem to think of things that way, does he? It is clear to Joseph from the way that he talks to his brothers here that he doesn't look at his life as merely a series of unfortunate events, you know, with a few fortunate ones thrown in there. No, Joseph is looking behind the curtain here, and he is discerning the hand of God as somehow present there in everything that has happened to him. Joseph would certainly agree with the idea that God is sovereign, 
meaning God is Lord of everything, that He is in control of whatever happens in the world. When we refer to this aspect of God's character and power and wisdom, we, we talk about it as the sovereignty of God. That's a big theological concept. But when we actually experience it firsthand, when we experience life, when we look at our lives the way Joseph did, and we see God's movement and God's activity in our lives, we tend to have another name for this aspect of God's sovereignty. We usually call it His providence. His providence. God's providential leading or providential provision, that's where the word comes from, in our lives. And we see God's providence all the time, if we care to. If we care to. In the past three weeks, two members of our First Alliance Church family have been in fairly serious car accidents. Uh, Both of these ladies escaped serious injury. In both cases, they were alone in the car. And in one case in particular, uh, the member's grandkids could have been in the car with her and would have been in the car with her, but a relative agreed to take them off her hands at the last minute before the accident. Coincidence? Maybe. Some of you remember years ago, um, back shortly after I got to, to First Alliance, one of our members... A lady in her 40s experienced a a near-fatal stroke. And you might also remember when that happened that her daughter, when asked by EMS which hospital to go to, had no idea what to say. But in in her shock, she blurted out the name of a hospital. Happened to be the hospital where a surgeon who specialized in treating this extremely rare and dangerous condition was not only on call, but was actually in the very last days of his time in the hospital, having arranged to go practice in another state, but he was here at least for that day in Winston-Salem. Coincidence? Maybe. Most of you have a lot of stories you could tell, right, about coincidences that maybe weren't coincidences, that maybe there was something else to them, that, that, that it, was just, it was more than random, right? And that, that may be significant, times in your life, or it may just be insignificant sounding things, but then again, who really knows what's insignificant and significant in our lives? Who knows what the important days and what the important moments and what the pivotal circumstances are going to be in our lives? One day during my sophomore year in college, so a long time ago, I was sitting in my dorm room, and I was puzzling over a decision. I was the conductor of of kind of a prestigious a cappella singing group on, on campus, and the, the, the decision I was struggling with was, do I keep my leadership position in this group, or do I step down from that position so that I'll have time to sing with a, a Christian singing group that I just found out about and I had some friends in that was much less high profile? And I couldn't decide. I was totally stuck, you know, making lists of pros and cons and all that kind of thing, and I didn't know what to do, and I did something kind of, maybe kind of silly. I, I put out a fleece, as they say. Uh, My dorm room was located right in the middle of campus, and over the course of a day, a whole variety of noises would would come through my window, from students discussing their classes, to skateboards whizzing by, to people playing music, to guys from the fraternity next door, you know, joking around with each other. And so I asked God, I said, God, all these noises come by my room all the time. If you really want me to join the singing group for sure, I I want you to send send me a pair of really obnoxious high heels going by. Um, because on, on days like that, it wasn't unusual that there would be like a party, because it was a pretty much a party school, and that uh, a, a well-dressed young lady would walk by, you know, my window, headed for one of these parties, and they usually had click, click, click heels on, you know. And so I asked God for that. Um, 
took about 20 seconds, and the next thing that I heard was the unmistakable click, 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 click of high heels on the sidewalk outside my window. I'm like, okay, God, I guess maybe you were listening. Would I have ended up joining that singing group anyway? I don't know. I honestly don't know. Was it really that significant a decision which singing group to sing with? As it turns out, yes, it was. And I have occasionally wondered who that girl was in the heels, where she was headed, and what she would think if she ever found out that a guy that she never saw on the other side of a dorm room window ended up meeting his future wife because she decided to walk down that sidewalk at exactly that moment in time. That she was actually being used by God in kind of a weird way there, right? Because that's what ended up happening in that singing group. But there are other more mundane, more everyday events that we recognize as being like this too, right? The Bible passage that you happen to read in your devotional time in the morning speaks precisely to a situation that you're going through in your life at that time. The Sunday school lesson or the small group discussion or the worship music at a given service seems to go hand in hand with the sermon, even though nobody colluded to make that happen. Now, are we just imagining things when we talk like this? We have to ask ourselves, right? are, we, are we Christians? Are we just more likely to look for the hand of God in everything so we're always seeing purpose when it's not really there? Or are some things just too coincidental to be coincidences? Is God actively perhaps ordering the events in our lives maybe even more than we realize? Now, it's not that these things are miraculous necessarily. Generally, they're not. God is not breaking any of the laws of nature. There are no miracles in the story of Joseph. There are a couple of dreams involved, but people have dreams all the time. And yet Joseph can look back over the story of his life, and particularly even at that really bad part where his brothers sold him into slavery, and he can see the hand of God. He clearly sees this is the providential activity of God. We deal with it all the time. Providence is where God is not necessarily intervening in miraculous ways, but nonetheless he is ordering events on earth and working through them to accomplish his greater purposes in our lives and in the world as a whole. He is intervening, not in miraculous ways, but he is ordering events on earth and working through them to accomplish his greater purposes in us and in the world. And in the time we have left, I just want to make several hopefully helpful observations about God's providential activity that are demonstrated here in what Joseph says and really in his life as a whole. First of all, and this is a big one for us, seeing the providential hand of God in his life allows Joseph to see meaning in his suffering. To see meaning in his suffering. So many things have happened in Joseph's life that ended up causing him pain. And if I'm Joseph, I'm, I'm thinking back over my life, and I'm thinking, why? Why did I have to have all these dreams? Why did I have to open my mouth and talk about these dreams? Why did those slave traders happen to come by right when they did? Why did that man's wife have to treat me like that? Why, why did that good-for-nothing cupbearer forget about me for two years? And for that matter, why do my brothers hate me so much? Joseph probably didn't even know about how Reuben had a plan to save him, but how the plan was foiled by Judah's plan to save him. What a cruel irony when you think about it, that that would even happen that way. And that reminds us that sometimes our suffering seems more than meaningless. Sometimes it seems cruel and unnecessary. 
It does. But Joseph here looks at stuff like that and he sees God's greater purposes for his life being fulfilled. And this is part of what allows him to forgive his brothers for their horrible treatment of him and their betrayal of him. The suffering that Joseph went through was real. I am sure he never wanted to go back and live another one of those days again. They were horrible. But the knowledge now that God was at work in all of this seems to take the edge off his pain and deliver him from bitterness. And a lot of that, I think, comes from the word good. The word good in verse 20. God meant it for good. God's purposes are not just meaningful, they are good because God is a good God. And it's possible to acknowledge that even in the midst of our troubles. I will never forget the video feed we saw, and I've shared this with you before, but the video feed we saw as a denomination at General Council some years ago when John Stumbo, who is now the, the, the president of the Christian Missionary Alliance, at the time he was the pastor of a big church in Oregon, and he stood on the stage of his church having almost died. He was still being stricken by a very debilitating and at that time still unknown illness. He was still partially paralyzed from it. He was unable to eat or drink through his mouth, and he was almost unable to form words. And so he couldn't talk a whole lot. He could barely stand up. And all he could say was this, and this is all he said, God is in it, and God is good. That's all he said. God is in it. And God is good. And you've been there, and I've been there. Brothers and sisters, sometimes that is all we can say in the depth of our struggles. We cannot philosophize about everything and figure it all out. All we can say is God is in it, and God is good. But both of those things are important parts of the sentence. And Joseph had come to understand this. And it helped him understand there was a meaning and a reason and a purpose even in his pain. Secondly, God's providence means that he can and does achieve his purposes through human decisions and actions, even evil or mistaken ones. He works through people. We make mistakes in life. We commit sin. And these sins and these mistakes clearly have consequences, right? They cause pain and suffering. They mess up our relationships with God and others. They do all sorts of bad things. However, because of God's sovereignty, because of God's providential work in our lives, you need to hear this. These sins and mistakes in your life do not have the power to trap you forever and fill you with regret and shame. They do not have the power to trap us forever in a life that is filled with regret and shame. As, as dumb as some of your mistakes have been, and as treacherous as some of your sin has been, your misdeeds do not have the power to knock God off His throne or to mess up His ultimate plan. Because God has the power and God has the wisdom to take even those mistakes and even those sins and to weave them into His plan in a way that the end result ends up being something good. Amen. Joseph's brothers did something evil. And it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an accident. They were deliberate about it. They had volition. They had motivation. They meant it, and Joseph admits this, they meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. God's purposes and our purposes can coexist even when his purposes are good and our purposes are bad. His sovereignty does not cancel out our free will or our responsibility. And yet, he works together in all things, Romans 8.28 says, that mean, all things, that means even in evil human decisions, 
for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is not the author of evil. God is not culpable for sin in any way. And yet his plan, while not causing evil things to happen, is big enough to include evil things happening. The way this works and the calculus with which God works all these variables and contingencies into his plan for our lives is something that is far behind, beyond our, our comprehension. We cannot possibly figure it out, but we can say this. Is God really that smart? Yes, he is. His understanding no one can fathom. His ways are beyond tracing out, but his purposes are good. His purposes are good. You don't have to hate somebody forever just because something bad happened to you, even if that person that you hate is yourself. Because you didn't frustrate God's good plan. You just didn't. Don't give yourself or your sin that much credit. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's real. Yes, it's wrong. Yes, it has consequences. But it didn't knock God off his throne. God can work and does work through these things. Here's my third observation. This has more to do with applying it. But the fact that God has a plan, the fact that God has a plan does not mean that we have to understand it. Or even, here's what we usually do, or even look for it all the time. You see, some of us, a lot of us go through life almost paralyzed with indecision for fear of missing out on some signal from God. So we're looking at every little event in our lives trying to figure out what God is doing and how God wants us to respond. Was that God? Was that God? Was that God? What does he want me to do? Oh no, I'm going to miss it. That is not the proper way to apply the doctrine of the providence of God. I want you to notice something. Joseph's statement here takes place at the end of the story, not in the middle. He is looking back on what God has done. Now that he has some perspective, and as he looks back over his life, he can see how the plan of God was taking shape at the time. But in the middle of Joseph's story, when he was going through all this, when he was in the thick of it, Joseph was not looking to the left or the right trying to figure everything out, trying to see God's direction and God's cues and God's hints in every little thing that happened. That's not what he was doing. You know what he was doing? He was simply obeying God the best he possibly could. That's what Joseph was doing. Now, I think Joseph knew that God had a plan, and I think that's why he never gave up or fell into despair. But he didn't know what the plan was and how it was going to work out. This is hugely important for us because you and I are not called to figure out God's plan for our life. We are only called to obey Him. Now, does it help to know that there is a plan? It does. That's awesome. And that's really the application of God's providence. It helps us to know that it is a plan and that it's a good plan because because of that, we can obey God with hope and with confidence even when things are not going all that well or when they're going horribly. But it's easy for us, if we're not careful, to become obsessed with looking for God's cues behind every little event in our lives. A lot of us talk about open doors and closed doors, right? When is God opening a door? When is God, do I look at my life and that, there's an open door from God, there's a closed door from God. Okay, that's fine as far as it goes, and I, I agree with you, God, God does open and close doors in our lives, but please, please know this, God's primary way of leading us is not by opening and closing doors, but it is by His Word, namely His commandments. 
And if we forget that, we can get so superstitious on one hand about trying to analyze and interpret everything so we can get kind of paralyzed by indecision. Or on the other hand, we can even fall into sin if we think this way. And here's how. Look at Joseph's life. I would dare say that Potiphar's wife was a pretty open door, right? I mean, she's willing, she's available, she's probably a very attractive woman given that she's the wife of the captain of the guard, and she and Joseph are the two most powerful people in the house for most of the day. It would not be hard to make this happen, right? What if Joseph had looked at that situation and said, wow, look at this open door that God has given me. After all the pain and trouble that I've been through, I guess he's finally giving me a little relief and I can have a little pleasure in my life. God's direction and the knowledge of his will comes first and foremost from his revealed word. Circumstances do not trump right and wrong. The teacher mistakenly leaving the answer key on her desk during the test is not an open door for you to cheat. The bank mistakenly depositing $1,000 in your account is not God's open door for you to steal it. And your spouse treating you badly at just the wrong time is not God's open door for you to be unfaithful to him or her. God's providential working and leading is meant to allow us to live with confidence and to obey with confidence, knowing that he has a plan, not to drive us to try to figure it out all the time. It's also meant to lead us to praise and thanksgiving when after all is said and done, we sometimes, sometimes, not always, but we sometimes can look back and we can see the fingerprints of God in our lives. Just one or two more observations. Here's a big one. God's plan is bigger than you and me. God's plan is bigger than one person. It's bigger than your situation. It's bigger than your problems. Sometimes, especially when things are going badly, we forget that there are 8 billion other people on earth whose interests and welfare God also cares about and that his plan for our lives interacts with his plan for their lives. And so there are some days, yeah, when the wedding party is praying for a really clear day and the farmer is praying for rain. And so we are seeing and experiencing only a very small sliver of God's plan. Stepping back, stepping back and looking at the big picture of Joseph's life and Joseph's story from the perspective of history and the rest of the Bible, you can ask this, what was accomplished through Joseph's pain? What was accomplished through Joseph's painful journey to Egypt as a slave forsaken and betrayed and sold by his brothers? What did that accomplish? Well, for one thing, it ended up saving the lives of thousands of Egyptians who would have died of starvation had Joseph not been there to warn them of the famine. It also saved the life of Joseph's whole family, which meant that in a weird way, the brothers' treachery in selling their brother actually ended up saving their lives. But not only did Jacob's family survive, they were also transplanted to Egypt. Well, why is that important? Well, Egypt, unlike Canaan, was a place where the Israelites could dwell securely and where they would not be likely to intermarry with the local population since they were shepherds, and shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. 
So Egypt was a place where Israel could grow from an extended family into a mighty nation, even as God waited for the sins of the Canaanites in the land to grow to a point where their evil would become too much for the land to bear, and then God could bring the children of Israel back to the promised land. In other words, God is working all these things together for good for many people, as Joseph admits there at the end of verse 20. So don't be surprised when you're going through life and going through stuff that God's plan looks a little strange to you from your angle because his plan is a lot bigger than you, bigger than me. Then one last thing. God's providential plan culminates in Christ. It culminates in Christ. As we Christians read through the Old Testament, we come across so many things, don't we, that, that, that could be coincidences or they could be something else. And the story of Joseph is really no exception. Uh, tell, me, tell me if this is a coincidence or are we just imagining things. Okay, think about Jesus. Okay, forward, fast forward in your mind. Think about Jesus and his experience. Jesus, the precious and beloved son of his father, who is sent by his father to his brothers, John tells us. But his brothers, the family of Israel, refused to receive him. Instead, they planned to kill him. And you could say that one of them even sold him as a slave. Not Judah, but Judas. You know what the redemption price is in Exodus 21 for a slave that is accidentally killed by an animal, as Joseph was said to have had happened to him? 30 pieces of silver. Isn't that strange? Jesus was also falsely accused of something. But instead of being locked in prison, he was actually killed. But by his suffering, Jesus saved the lives eternally of many, many people. And then when it was all over, his father received him back from the dead. And he is now exalted to a place much higher than Joseph ever rose to because one day every knee will bow to Jesus. So, am I reading too much into this? Or is it, is it possible to take these connections too far? I'm sure it is. But is it also possible that God is showing us through the unity of his word that his grand design is actually amazingly more intricate and complex than we ever thought it was? That while we are only looking at the backside of the embroidery, you know, with all the messy tangles and knots and the confused colors, but on the other side, God is indeed weaving together all the events of history and all the events of our lives in order to bring meaning out of the chaos and even to bring beauty out of our pain. Let's pray.